0: This past January, our family suffered a tragic loss of our grandson Nathan in an airplane crash. Nathan served in the Russian-speaking Baltic mission. He loved the people and knew it was a privilege to serve the Lord. Three months after I officiated at his eternal marriage to his sweetheart, Jennifer, this accident took his life. Nathan, being taken so suddenly from our mortal presence, has turned each of our hearts and minds to the Atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. While it is impossible for me to put into words the full meaning of the Atonement of Christ, I pray that I can explain what His Atonement means to me and our family and what it might also mean to you and yours. The Savior's precious birth, life, atonement in the Garden of Gethsemane, the suffering on the cross, His burial in Joseph's tomb, and His glorious Resurrection all became a renewed reality for us. The Savior's Resurrection assures all of us that someday we, too, will follow Him and experience our own Resurrection. What peace! what comfort this great gift is which comes through the loving grace of Jesus Christ, the Savior and Redeemer of all mankind. Because of Him, we know we can be with Nathan again. There is no greater expression of love than the heroic atonement performed by the Son of God. Were it not for the plan of our Heavenly Father, established before the world began, In the very real sense, all mankind—past, present, and future—would have been left without the hope of eternal progression. As a result of Adam's transgression, mortals were separated from God and would be forever, unless a way was found to break the bands of death. This would not be easy, for it required the vicarious sacrifice of one who was sinless and who could therefore take upon himself the sins of all mankind. Thankfully, Jesus Christ courageously fulfilled this, ancient, this in ancient Jerusalem. There, in the quiet isolation of the Garden of Gethsemane, he knelt among the gnarled olive trees. And in some incredible way that none of us can fully comprehend, the Savior took upon Himself the sins of the world. Even though His life was pure and free of sin, He paid the ultimate penalty for sin, yours, mine, and everyone who has ever lived. His mental, emotional, and spiritual anguish were so great they caused Him to bleed from every pore. And yet Jesus suffered willingly so that we might all have the opportunity to be washed clean through our faith in Him, repentance of our sins, being baptized by proper priesthood authority, and through receiving the purifying gift of the Holy Ghost by confirmation and by accepting all other essential ordinances. Without the Atonement of the Lord, none of these blessings would be available to us and we could not become worthy and prepared to return and dwell in the presence of God. The Savior later endured the agony of inquisition, cruel beatings, and death by crucifixion on the cross at Calvary. Recently there has been a great deal of commentary about this, none of which has made it clear the singular point that no one had the power to take the Savior's life from Him. He gave it as a ransom for all. As the Son of God, He had the power to alter the si- situation. Yet the scriptures clearly state that He yielded Himself to scourging, humiliation, suffering, and finally crucifixion because of His great love towards the children of men. The Atonement of Jesus Christ was an indispensable part of our Heavenly Father's plan for His Son's earthly mission and for our salvation. How grateful we should be that our Heavenly Father did not intercede but rather withheld His fatherly instinct to rescue His beloved Son. Because of His eternal love for you and for me, He allowed Jesus to complete His foreordained mission to become our Redeemer. The gift of resurrection and immortality is given freely through the loving grace of Jesus Christ to all people of all ages, regardless of their good or evil acts, and to those who choose to love the Lord and who show their love and faith in Him by keeping His commandments and qualifying for the full blessings of the Atonement He offers the additional promise of exaltation and eternal life, which is the blessing of living in the presence of God and His Beloved Son forever. We often sing a hymn that expresses what I feel when I consider the Savior's benevolent atoning sacrifice. I stand all amazed at the love Jesus offers me, confused at the grace that so fully He proffers me. I tremble to know that for me He was crucified, that for me a sinner. He suffered, He bled, and died. Jesus Christ, the Savior and Redeemer of all mankind, is not dead. He lives. The resurrected Son of God lives. That is my testimony, and He guides the affairs of His Church today. In the spring of 1820, a pillar of light illuminated a grove of trees in upstate New York. Our Heavenly Father and His Beloved Son appeared to the Prophet Joseph Smith. This experience began the restoration of powerful doctrinal truths that had been lost for centuries. Among those truths that had been dimmed by the darkness of apostasy was the stirring reality that we are all the spirit sons and daughters of a loving God who is our Father. We are part of His family. He is not a Father in some allegorical or poetic sense. He is literally the Father of our spirits. He cares for each one of us. Though this world has a way of diminishing and demeaning men and women, the reality is we are of royal divine lineage. In that unprecedented appearance of the Father and the Son in the sacred grove, the very first word spoken by the Father of us all was the personal name of Joseph. Such is our Father's personal relationship with each of us. He knows our names and yearns for us to become worthy to return and live with Him. Through the Prophet Joseph Smith came the restoration of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ has once again revealed through His chosen prophet the ordinances and the priesthood authority to administer them for the salvation of all who will believe. Another prophet in another time was shown the nations of the earth, and the Lord showed Enoch all things, even unto the end of the world. Enoch saw also that Satan had a great chain in his hand, and it veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. And he, Satan, looked up and laughed. With all that Enoch beheld, there was one thing that seemed to capture his attention above everything else. Enoch saw God look upon the residue of the people, and he wept. The sacred record then has Enoch asking God over and over, How is it thou canst weep? How is it thou canst weep? The Lord answered Enoch, Behold, these thy brethren, they are the workmanship of mine own hands. Unto thy brethren have I also given commandment that they should love one another, and they should choose me, their father. But, behold, they are without affection, and they hate their own blood." Enoch saw the condition of these latter days. He and other early prophets knew that only as we accept the Atonement in our lives and strive to live the gospel can we meet the challenges of life and find peace, joy, and happiness. Coming to understand this great gift is an individual pursuit for each child of God. Brothers and sisters, I believe that if we could truly understand the Atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would realize how precious is one son or daughter of God. I believe our Heavenly Father's everlasting purpose for His children is generally achieved by the small and simple things we do for one another. At the heart of the English word atonement is the word one. If all mankind understood this, there would never be anyone with whom we would not be concerned, regardless of age, race, gender, religion, or social or economic standing. We would strive to emulate the Savior, and we would never be unkind, indifferent, disrespectful, or insensitive to others. If we truly understood the Atonement and the eternal value of each soul, we would seek out the wayward boy and girl and every other wayward child of God. We would help them to know the love Christ has for them. We would do all that we can to help them prepare, to help prepare them to receive the saving ordinances of the gospel. Surely, if the Atonement of Christ was foremost in the minds of ward and branch leaders, no new or reactivated member would ever be neglected. Because every soul is so precious, they will counsel together to see that each one is taught the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I think of Nathan and how precious he is to us, I can see and feel more clearly how our Heavenly Father must feel about all of His children. We do not want God to weep, because we did not do all we could to share with His children the revealed truths of the gospel. I pray that every one of our youth will seek to know the blessings of the Atonement, and they will strive to be worthy to serve the Lord in in the mission field. Surely many more senior couples and others who health will permit would eagerly desire to serve the Lord as missionaries if they would ponder over the meaning of the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who said, If ye should labor all your days, crying repentance unto this people, and bring, save it be, one soul unto me, How great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father! Not only that, but great shall be the Lord's joy in the soul that repenteth, for precious unto him is the One." Brothers and sisters, our Heavenly Father has reached out to us through the Atonement of our Savior. He invites all to come unto Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel and partake of His salvation and the power of His redemption. He has taught us that it is through our faithful adherence to gospel principles, through receiving the saving ordinances that have been restored, through the continual service, and by enduring to the end that we can return to His sacred presence. What possible thing in the whole world is remotely as important— as to know this. Sadly, in today's world, a person's importance is often judged by the size of the audience before which he or she performs. That is how media and sports programs are rated, how corporate prominence is sometimes determined, and how governmental rank is is sometimes obtained. That may be why the roles such as father, mother, and missionary seldom receive standing ovations. Fathers, mothers, and missionaries play before very small audiences. Yet in the eyes of the Lord, there may be only one size of audience that is of lasting importance, and that is just one, each one, you, me, and each one of the children of God. The irony of the Atonement is that it was infinite and eternal, yet it applies individually one person at a time. There is a level which the child's hymn, I Am a Child of God, harmonizes with the music of eternity. We are children of God. Each one of us is precious to the point of bringing the Lord God Almighty to a fullness of joy if we are faithful, or to tears if we are not. As the resurrected Savior said to the Nephites, so he might say to us today, Blessed are ye because of your faith, and now my joy is full. And when he had said these words, he wept, and the multitude bare record of it, and he took their little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the Father for them. Brothers and sisters, never, never underestimate how precious is the one. Remember always the simple admonition of the Lord. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Always strive to live worthy of the sacred full blessings of the Atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our sorrow over the separation from our dear Nathan has come the peace that only the Savior and the Redeemer can give. Our family has turned to Him one by one, and we now sing with greater appreciation and understanding. Oh, it is wonderful that He should care for me enough to die for me. Oh, it is wonderful, wonderful to me. My dear brothers and sisters, may you give to others and receive for yourselves every blessing the Atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ offers. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
1: In recent years, we Latter-day Saints have been teaching, singing, testifying, much more about the Savior, Jesus Christ. I rejoice that we are rejoicing more. As we talk more of Christ, the gospel's doctrinal fullness will come out of obscurity. For example, some of our friends can't see how our Atonement beliefs relate to our beliefs about becoming more like our Heavenly Father. Others mistakenly think our Church is moving toward an understanding of the relationship between grace and works that draws on Protestant teachings. Such misconceptions prompt me today to consider the Restoration's unique Atonement doctrine. The Lord restored His gospel through Joseph Smith because there had been an apostasy. Since the fifth century, Christianity taught that Adam and Eve's fall was a tragic mistake which led to the belief that humankind has an inherently evil nature. That view is wrong, not only about the fall and human nature, but about the very purpose of life. The fall wasn't a disaster. It wasn't a mistake or an accident. It was a deliberate part of the plan of salvation. We are God's spirit offspring sent to earth innocent of Adam's transgression And yet our Father's plan subjects us to temptation and misery in this fallen world as the price to comprehend authentic joy. Without tasting the bitter, we can't understand the sweet. We require mortality's discipline and refinement as the next step in our development toward becoming like our Father. But growth means growing pains. It also means learning from our mistakes in a continual process made possible by the Savior's grace, which He extends both during and after all we can do. Adam and Eve learned constantly from their often harsh experience. They knew how a troubled family feels. Think of Cain and Abel. Yet because of the Atonement, they could learn from their experience without being condemned by it. Christ's sacrifice didn't just erase their choices and return them to an Eden of innocence. That would be a story with no plot and no character development. His plan is developmental, line upon line, step by step, grace for grace. So if you have problems in your life, don't assume there's something wrong with you. Struggling with those problems is at the very core of life's purpose. As we draw close to God, He will show us our weaknesses and through them make us wiser, stronger. So if you're seeing your weaknesses, that just might mean you're moving nearer to God, not further away. One early Australian convert said, My past life was a wilderness of weeds with hardly a flower strewed among them, but now the weeds have vanished and flowers have sprung up in their place. We grow in two ways, removing negative weeds and cultivating positive flowers, and the Savior's grace blesses both parts if we do our part. First and repeatedly, we must uproot the weeds of sin and bad choices. It isn't enough just to mow the weeds, yank them out by the roots, repenting fully to satisfy the conditions of mercy. Being forgiven is only part of our growth we're not just paying a debt. Our purpose is to become celestial beings. So once we've cleared our heartland, we must continually plant, weed, and nourish the seeds of divine qualities. And then, as our sweat and discipline stretch us to meet His gifts, the flowers of grace appear like hope and meekness. Even a tree of life can take root in this heart garden, bearing fruit so sweet that it lightens all our burdens through the joy of His Son. And when the flower of charity blooms here, we will love others with the power of Christ's own love. We need grace, both to overcome sinful weeds and to grow divine flowers. We can do neither one fully by ourselves. But grace is not cheap. It is very expensive, even very dear. How much does this grace cost? Is it enough simply to believe in Christ? The man who found the pearl of great price gave all that he had for it. If we desire all that the Father hath, God asks all that we have. To qualify for such exquisite treasure in whatever way is ours, we must give the way Christ gave every drop he had, how exquisite you know not, yea, how hard to bear you know not. Paul said, If so be that we suffer with Him, we are joint heirs with Christ, all of His heart, all of our hearts. What possible pearl could be worth such a price for Him and for us? This earth is not our home. We're away at school trying to master the lessons of the great plan of happiness so we can return home and know what it means to be there. Over and over the Lord tells us why the plan is worth our sacrifice and His. Eve called it the joy of our redemption. Jacob called it that happiness which is prepared for the Saints. Of necessity, the plan is full of thorns and tears, His and ours. But because He and we are so totally in this together, our being at one with Him and overcoming all opposition will itself bring us incomprehensible joy. Christ's Atonement is at the very core of this plan. Without His dear, dear sacrifice, there would be no way home, no way to be together, no way to be like Him. He gave us all He had. Therefore. How great is His joy when even one of us gets it, when we look up, look up from the weed patch and turn our face to the sun. Only the restored gospel has the fullness of these truths. Yet the adversary is engaged in one of history's greatest cover-ups, trying to persuade people that this Church knows least when, in fact, it knows most about how our relationship with Christ makes true Christians of us. If we must give all that we have, then our giving almost everything is not enough. If we almost keep the commandments, we almost receive the blessings. For example, some young people assume they can romp in sinful mud until taking a shower of repentance just before being interviewed for a mission or the temple. In the very act of transgression, some plan to repent. They mock the gift of mercy that true repentance allows. Some people want to keep one hand on the wall of the temple while touching the world's unclean things with the other hand. We must put both hands on the temple and hold on for dear life. One hand is not even almost enough. The rich young man had given almost everything. When the Savior told him he must sell all his possessions, that wasn't just a story about riches. We can have eternal life if we want it, but only if there's nothing else we want more. So we must willingly give everything, because God Himself can't make us grow against our will and without our full participation. And yet even if we utterly spend ourselves, we lack the power to create the perfection only God can complete our all by itself is still only almost enough until it is finished by the all of Him who is the finisher of our faith. At that point, our imperfect but consecrated almost is enough. My friend Donna grew up desiring to marry and raise a, to raise a large family, but that blessing never came. Instead, she spent her adult years serving the people in her ward with unmeasured compassion and counseling disturbed children in a large school district. She had crippling arthritis and many long blue days, yet she always lifted and was always lifted by her friends and family. Once when teaching about Lehi's dream, she said with gentle humor, I'd put myself in that picture on the straight and narrow path still holding to the iron rod, but collapsed from fatigue right on the path in an inspired blessing given just before her death. Donna's home teacher said the the Lord accepted her. Donna cried. She would never felt her single life was acceptable. But the Lord said those who observe their covenants by sacrifice are accepted of me. I can envision him walking the path from the tree of life to lift Donna up with gladness and carry her home. Consider others who, like Donna, have consecrated themselves so fully that for them almost is enough. Many missionaries in Europe and similar places who never stop offering their bruised hearts despite continual rejection. Those handcart pioneers who said they came to know God in their extremities and the price they paid to know Him was a privilege to pay. A father who reached his outermost limits but still couldn't influence his daughter's choices, he could only crawl toward the Lord, bleeding like Alma for his child. A wife who encouraged her husband despite his years of weakness until the seeds of repentance finally sprouted in his heart. She said, I tried to look at him the way Christ would look at me. A husband who suffered for years from a disabling emotional dis- disorder. Excuse me, a wife who suffered for years from a disabling emotional disorder. But to her husband, it was always our little challenge, never just her illness. In the realm of their marriage, He was afflicted in their afflictions, just as Christ was afflicted in our afflictions in His infinite realm. The people in 3 Nephi 17 had survived destruction, doubt, and darkness just to get to the temple with Jesus. After listening to Him for hours in wonder, they grew too weary to comprehend Him. As he prepared to leave, they tearfully looked at him with such total desire that he stayed and blessed their afflicted ones and their children. They didn't even understand him, but they wanted to be with him more than they wanted any other thing, and so he stayed. There almost was enough. Almost is especially enough. When our sacrifices somehow echo the Savior's sacrifice, however imperfect we are, We can't really feel charity—Christ's love for others—without at least tasting His suffering for others, because the love and the suffering are but two single sides—two sides of a single reality. When we really are afflicted in the afflictions of other people, we may enter the fellowship of His suffering enough to become joint heirs with Him. May we not shrink when we discover paradoxically how dear a price we must pay to receive what is finally a gift from Him. When the Savior's all and our all come together, we will find not only forgiveness of sin, we shall see Him as He is, and we shall be like Him. I love Him. I want to be with Him. In the name of
2: Jesus Christ, amen. Shortly after I was married, my three brothers and I were sitting in my father's office for a business meeting. At the conclusion of our meeting, as we stood to leave, Dad stopped, turned to us, and said, You boys are not treating your wives as you should. You need to show them more kindness and respect. My father's words penetrated my soul. Today we are witnessing an unending assault on marriage and the family. They seem to be the adversary's prime targets for belittlement and destruction. In a society where marriage is often shunned, parenthood avoided, and families degraded, we have the responsibility to honor our marriages, nurture our children, and fortify our families. Honoring marriage requires that spouses render love, respect, and devotion. one another. We have been given sacred instruction to love thy wife with all thy heart, cleave unto her and none else. The prophet Malachi taught, The Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Therefore take heed and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. To live our life with the wife of our youth, keeping covenants, acquiring wisdom, and sharing love, now and throughout eternity, is a privilege indeed. I am reminded of the expression, when the satisfaction or the security of another person becomes as significant to one as one's own satisfaction and security then the state of love exists. Marriage is meant to be and must be a loving, binding, harmonious relationship between a man and a woman. When a husband and a wife understand that the family is ordained of God and that marriage can be filled with promises and blessings extending into the eternities, separation and divorce would seldom be a consideration in the Latter-day Saint Home. Couples would realize that the sacred ordinances and covenants made in the house of the Lord provide the means whereby they can return to the presence of God. Parents have a duty, have been given the sacred duty to bring up children in the nurture of the Lord. The first commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve pertained to their potential for parenthood as husband and wife. Our responsibility, then, is not only for the well-being of our spouse but extends to the watchful care of our children, for children are an heritage of the Lord. We can make the choice to nurture our children accordingly and teach them to pray and to walk uprightly before the Lord. As parents, we must regard our children as gifts from God committed to making our homes a place to love, train, and nurture our sons and daughters. President Monson reminds us the mantle of leadership is not the cloak of comfort but the role of responsibility. Youth need fewer critics and more models to follow. One hundred years from now, it will not matter what kind of a car we drove, what kind of a house we lived in, how much we had in the bank account or what our clothes looked like. But the world may be a little better because we were important in the life of a boy or a girl. Although life sometimes makes us weary, impatient, or too busy for our children, we must never forget the infinite worth of what we have in our homes, our sons, and our daughters. The task at hand, a business engagement, or a new automobile all are of benefit but pale in value when compared to the worth of a young soul." John Gunther, a father who lost his young son to brain cancer, urged, "'While you still have sons and daughters, embrace them with a little added rapture and a keenness awareness of joy.'" President Harold B. Lee told of a great educator, Horace Mann, who was the speaker at the dedication of a boys' school. In his talk, he said, This school has cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, but if this school is able to save one boy, it is worth all that it cost." One of his friends came up to Mr. Mann at the close of the meeting and said, You let your enthusiasm get away with you, didn't you? You said, If this school costing hundreds of thousands of dollars were to save just one boy, it was worth all that it cost? You surely don't mean that. Horace Mann looked at him and said, Yes, my friend it would be worth it if that one boy were my son. It would be worth it. Loving, protecting, and nurturing our children are among the most sacred and eternally important things we will do. Worldly belongings will vanish. Today's number one movie or song will be irrelevant tomorrow. But a son or a daughter is eternal. The family is central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of His children. Therefore, parents and children must work together in unity to fortify family relationships, cultivating them day in and day out. I have a brother who was associated with a large university. He told of a student-athlete who was an outstanding hurdler. The young man was blind. Rex asked him, Don't you ever fall? I have to be exact, the athlete responded. I measure each time before I jump. One time I didn't, and I nearly killed myself." The young man then spoke of the countless hours his father had devoted over the years teaching, helping, and showing him how to hurdle until he became one of the best. How could this young man fail with a team like that, a father and a son? Young men and women, you can be a great influence for good in your homes as you help to achieve worthy family objectives. I shall never forget the family home evening years ago in which the name of each uh, member of our family was placed in a hat. The name you picked from the hat would be your secret friend for the week. You can imagine the love that filled my heart when I came home that Tuesday after work to sweep out the garage as I had earlier promised and found it cleanly swept. There was a note attached to the garage door which read, Hope you had a good day, your secret friend. And on Friday night, as I turned down my bed, I uncovered an almond joy, my favorite candy bar, wrapped carefully in scotch tape and plain white paper with a note, Dad, I love you a lot. Thanks, your secret friend. (laughs) Then, to top it off, after returning home from a late meeting Sunday evening, I found the dining room table beautifully set and written on the napkin by my place were the words "Super Dad," in big, bold letters and in parentheses your secret friend. Hold your family home evenings, for this is where the gospel is taught, a testimony gained, and the family fortified. Although the adversary seeks to destroy the key elements necessary for a happy marriage and a righteous family, let me assure you that the gospel of Jesus Christ provides the tools and teachings necessary to combat and conquer the assailant in this war if we will but honor our marriages by imparting more love and selflessness to our spouses, nurture our children through gentle persuasion and the expert teacher we call example, and fortify the spirituality of our families through consistent family home evening, prayer, and scripture study, I testify to you that the living Savior Jesus Christ will guide us and grant us victory in our efforts to achieve an eternal family unit. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
3: Years ago, my adventurous son Jeff and I found ourselves on an old bus bouncing along on a dirt road in Central America at 1 a.m. We took the early, early bus because it was the only bus that day. A half hour later, the driver stopped for two missionaries. When they got on, we asked them where in the world they were going so early. Zone conference, and they were determined to do whatever it took to get there. At 2 a.m., two more elders boarded the bus and enthusiastically hugged their fellow missionaries. This scene repeated itself every half hour as the bus climbed the remote mountain road. By 5 a.m., we had 16 of the Lord's finest as fellow passengers and were basking in the spirit they brought on board. Suddenly we screeched to a halt. A massive mudslide had buried the road. Jeff said, What do we do now, Dad? Our friends, Stan, Eric, and Alan, had the same concern. Just then, the zone leader shouted, Let's go, elders. Nothing is going to stop us. And they scrambled off the bus. We looked at each other and said, Follow the elders. And we all sloshed through the mudslide, trying to keep up with the missionaries. There happened to be a truck on the other side, so we all hopped aboard. After a mile, we were stopped by yet another mudslide. Once again, the elders plowed through, with the rest of us close behind. But this time, there was no truck. Boldly, the Zone Leader said, we will be where we are supposed to be if we have to walk the rest of the way. Years later, Jeff told me how those missionaries in this photo inspired and motivated him tremendously as he served the Lord in Argentina. Although we overcame the mudslides, we were all spotted with mud. The missionaries were somewhat nervous about standing before their president on Zone Conference Day when he and his wife would be carefully checking their appearance. As you and I slosh through the mudslides of life, we can't help getting a few mud spots on us along the way either and we don't want to stand before the Lord looking muddy. When the Savior appeared in ancient America, He said, Repent, all ye ends of the earth, and come unto me and be baptized in my name, that ye may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost, that ye may stand spotless before me at the last day. Alma said, Ye cannot be saved. For there can no man be saved except his garments are washed white. Yea, his garments must be purified until they are cleansed from all stain. How will any of you feel if ye shall stand before the bar of God, having your garments stained with blood and all manner of filthiness? He also tells us about all the holy prophets whose garments are cleansed and are spotless, pure, and white. He then asks us how we are doing as we cross to the mudslides of life. Have ye walked, keeping yourselves blameless before God? Could ye say, if ye were called to die at this time, that your garments have been cleansed and made white through the blood of Christ? Because of repentance and the Atonement of Jesus Christ, our garments can be spotless, pure, fair, and white. Moroni pleads, O then, ye unbelieving, Turn ye unto the Lord, cry mightily unto the Father in the name of Jesus, that perhaps ye may be found spotless, pure, fair, and white, having been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb at that great and last day. In Samuel we read, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. The Nephites were looking on the outward appearance of the Lamanites. For Jacob declared, Wherefore, a commandment I give unto you, which is the word of God, that ye revile no more against them because of the darkness of their skins. Our Father knows and loves His children all over the world, from Boston to Okinawa, from San Antonio to Spain, from Italy to Costa Rica. In Ghana, President Gordon B. Hinckley recently thanked the Lord for the brotherhood that exists among us, that neither color of skin nor land of birth can separate us as thy sons and daughters. We invite men and women everywhere, whatever language or culture, to come unto Christ and partake of His goodness, and He denieth none that come unto Him, black and white, bond and free, male and female, for all are alike unto God. We come to this world in many colors, shapes, sizes, and circumstances. We don't have to be rich, tall, thin, brilliant, or beautiful to be saved in the kingdom of God, only pure. We need to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ and keep His commandments. And we can all choose to do that, regardless of where we live or what we look like. When the four sons of Mosiah taught the gospel to the wild, ferocious Lamanites, a mighty change of heart occurred. As many of the Lamanites as believed in their preaching and were converted to the Lord never did fall away. For they became a righteous people. They did lay down the weapons of their rebellion, that they did not fight against God anymore, neither against any of their brethren. Today many of their descendants are reading about this in their own copies of the Book of Mormon and are choosing to follow Christ. I love meeting the children of Lehi in spotless white in the numerous temples in the Mexico South area where I am currently serving. I feel, as President Gordon B. Hinckley did, at the dedication of the Guatemala City Temple. Thou kind and gracious Father, Our hearts swell with gratitude for thy remembrance of the sons and daughters of Lehi, the many generations of our fathers and mothers who suffered so greatly and who walked for so long in darkness. Thou hast heard their cries and seen their tears. Now there will be open to them the gates of salvation and eternal life. I have seen humble descendants of Lehi, come down from the mountains to that temple and openly weep as they stood there in awe. One gave me an abrazo and asked me to take that hug of love and appreciation and brotherhood back to all those beloved missionaries that brought them the gospel, and to all the Saints whose tithing faithfulness has brought temple blessings within reach. Because of the Atonement of Jesus Christ, We can all stand spotless, pure, and white before the Lord. With great gratitude I lift my voice with Nephi, and we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies, that our children and our grandchildren may know to what source they may look for remission of their sins. My wife and I love this scripture so much She painted it on a wall in our living room below a beautiful white porcelain Christus. They are a constant reminder for us to live Christ-centered lives. One day our son was reading the scriptures with his family. Our seven-year-old grandson, Clady, read, and we talk of Christ. We rejoice in Christ. Hey, that's what Granny and Grandpa have on their wall. now. That's one of his favorite scriptures. On another occasion, we were at the Visitor Center on Temple Square with these same grandchildren. Two-year-old Ashley was tired and wanted to leave. Sister Mask asked her if she wanted to see a big Jesus like the one on our wall. She asked, Is he as big as me? Even bigger, Sister Mask replied. When that tiny little girl looked up at the majestic Christus, she ran and stood at the feet and gazed up reverently for several minutes. When her father indicated it was time to go, she said, No, no, Daddy. He loves me and wants to give me hugs. The road of life is strewn with spiritual mudslides. Whatever our sins and imperfections, May we attack them with the same missionary zeal that those elders attacked their mudslides. And may we thank our Father daily for sending us His Son Jesus Christ to forgive us our mud spots, so that we may stand spotless before Him. Ashley was right. He does love us and will say to us at that great day, well done. Thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. I bear witness that He lives and He loves us. He is our Savior and our Redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
4: As Paul prophesied, we live in perilous times. Satan has been going about leading away the hearts of the people, and his influence is increasing. But no matter how evil the world becomes, our families can be at peace. If we do what's right, we'll be guided and protected. The hymn often sung by our pioneer ancestors tells us what to do. Gird up your loins, fresh courage take. Our God will never us forsake. That courage and faith is what we need as parents and families in these latter days. Father Lehi had such courage. He loved his family and rejoiced that some of his children kept the Lord's commandments. But he must have been heartbroken when his sons, Laman and Lemuel, partook not of the fruit representing the love of God. He exceedingly feared for them. Yea, he feared lest they should be cast off from the presence of the Lord. Every parent faces moments of such fear. However, when we exercise our faith by teaching our children and doing what we can to help them, our fears will diminish. Lehi girded up his loins, and with faith he did exhort his children with all the feeling of a tender parent that they would hearken to his words that perhaps, yes, perhaps, the Lord would be merciful to them. And He bade them to keep the commandments of the Lord. We too must have the faith to teach our children and bid them to keep the commandments. We should not let their choices weaken our faith. Our worthiness will not be measured according to their righteousness. Lehi did not lose the blessings of feasting at the Tree of Life because Laman and Lemuel refused to partake of its fruit. Sometimes, as parents, we feel we have failed when our children make mistakes or stray. Parents are never failures when they do their best to love, teach, and care for their children. Their faith and prayers and efforts will be consecrated to the good of their children. The Lord's desire for us as parents is that we keep His commandments. And he said, Teach your children light and truth. According to the commandments, set in order your own house. And see, you are more diligent and concerned at home. I want to remind all of us today that no family has reached perfection. All families are subject to the conditions of mortality. All of us are given the gift of agency, to choose for ourselves and to learn from the consequences of our choices. Any of us may experience a spouse, a child, a parent, or a member of an extended family suffering in one way or another—mentally, physically, emotionally, or spiritually. And we may experience these tribulations ourselves at times. In short, mortality is not easy. Each family has its own special circumstances. But the gospel of Jesus Christ addresses every challenge, which is why we must teach it to our children. The Family Proclamation to the World states, Parents have a sacred duty to rear their children in love and righteousness, to provide for their physical and spiritual needs, to teach them to love and serve one another, to observe the commandments of God, and to be law-abiding citizens wherever they live husbands and wives, mothers and fathers—will be held accountable before God for the discharge of these obligations. Fulfilling these obligations is the key to protecting our families in these last days. Moses counseled, And thou shalt teach these words diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Our family should be in our thoughts continually. Moses understood the need for constant teaching, for he grew up in difficult times. At the time of Moses was born, Pharaoh had declared that every Hebrew male infant in Egypt should be cast into the river. But Moses' parents took seriously their parental duties. The scriptures record, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents, and his parents were not afraid of the king's commandment. When Moses grew too old to be concealed, his mother, Jochebed, constructed an ingenious basket of bulrushes, waterproofed it with slime and pitch, and placed her son inside. She directed the tiny vessel down the river to a safe place to where the pharaoh's daughter bathed. Leaving nothing to chance, Jochebed also sent along an inspired helper her daughter Miriam, to keep watch. When Pharaoh's daughter the princess found the baby, Miriam bravely offered to call a Hebrew nurse. That nurse was Jochebed, Moses' mother. Because of her faithfulness, Moses' life was spared. In time he learned who he really was, and he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. I join with faithful parents everywhere in declaring that we know who we are, we understand our responsibilities as parents, and we do not fear the wrath of the Prince of Darkness. We trust in the light of the Lord. Like Jochebed, we raise our families in a wicked and hostile world, a world as dangerous as the courts of Egypt ruled by Pharaoh. But like Jochebed, we also weave around our children a protective basket. A vessel called the family, and guide them to safe places where our teachings can be reinforced in the home and at Church. Ultimately, we guide them to the greatest of all houses of learning, the Holy Temple, where one day they can kneel, surrounded by their faithful family members, to be sealed for time and all eternity to a worthy companion. What they learn from us they will teach their children and the work of eternal families will go on. Along the way, at times when our children are away from us, the Lord provides inspired Miriams to watch over them, special third-party helpers such as priesthood and auxiliary leaders, teachers, extended family, and worthy friends. Sometimes the Spirit prompts us as parents to seek special help beyond ourselves through such resources as doctors and qualified counselors. The Spirit will direct when and how such help should be obtained, but the greatest help for our families comes through the gospel from our Heavenly Father and through the guidance of the Holy Ghost in doctrines and principles and through the priesthood. May I share with you five important elements of parenting that will assist us in strengthening our families. Hold family councils. Sometimes we are afraid of our children, afraid to counsel with them for fear of offending them. There are priceless blessings to be obtained from counseling together with our families, showing a genuine interest in the lives of our family members. Occasionally, family councils may involve all family members as part of a family home evening or other special gathering. But we should regularly counsel with each of our children individually. Without this one-on-one counseling together with our children, they are prone to believe that dad and mom or grandpa and grandma don't understand or care about the challenges they are facing. As we listen with love and refrain from interrupting, the Spirit will help us learn how we can be of help to our children and teach them. For example, we may teach them that they can choose their actions but not the consequences of those actions. We can also gently help them understand what the consequences of their actions may be in their own lives. Sometimes when our teachings aren't heeded and when our expectations are not met, we need to remind ourselves to leave the door to our hearts open. In the parable of the prodigal son, We find a powerful lesson of families, and especially parents. After the younger son came to himself, he decided to go home. How did he know his father wouldn't reject him? Because he knew his father. Through the inevitable misunderstandings, conflicts, and follies of his youth, I can visualize his father being there with an understanding and compassionate heart, a soft answer, a listening ear a forgiving embrace. I can also imagine his son knowing he could come home, because he knew the kind of home that was awaiting him. For the scriptures say, And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and had compassion, and ran, and fell upon his neck, and kissed him. I testify that our Heavenly Father leaves the door open. I also testify it will never be too late to open the door between us and our children with the simple words such as, I love you, I am sorry, and please forgive me. We can begin now to create a home which they will want to return to, not only now but in the eternities. We can also help our obedient children to leave the door of forgiveness open by expressing our love and appreciation to them and by helping them rejoice in repentance of their siblings. When the door of our hearts are open, We should learn how to liken the scriptures to our lives. We often talk about teaching our children from the scriptures, but how do we do that? Several years ago, I was teaching our young son about the life and experiences of the brother of Jared. All of the story was very interesting. He was not engaged. I then asked what the story meant to him personally. It means so much when we ask our children What does it mean to you?" He said, You know, it's not that different from what Joseph Smith did in the grove when he prayed and got an answer. I said, You're about Joseph's age. Do you think a prayer like his would be helpful to you? Suddenly we weren't talking about a long-ago story in a faraway land. We were talking about our Father and Son. We are talking about our Son and His life, His needs, and the way prayer could help Him. As parents, we have the responsibility to help our children liken all scriptures, indeed every part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, unto us and unto our children for the profit and learning of our families. As we are likening all of our children's gospel experiences, to the real needs in their lives? Are we teaching them about the gift of the Holy Ghost, repentance, the Atonement, the sacrament, and the blessing of the sacrament meeting as they meet the challenges in their life? There is not enough time in formal meetings to teach our children everything they need to know. Therefore, we must take advantage of everyday teaching moments. These moments are priceless. They come when we're working and playing and struggling together. When they come, the Spirit of the Lord can help us know what to say and help our children accept our teaching. What a joy and blessing to have the Spirit in our homes. And what a blessing it is to invite it through prayer, studying the scriptures, speaking kindly, and showing appreciation to one another. Let us prepare our teaching moments by praying as Alma prayed for his Son with much faith and all the energy of our souls by fasting, searching the scriptures, repenting of our sins, and allowing the Holy Ghost to fill our hearts with love, forgiveness, and compassion. And then it will fill our homes. Then let us trust the Good Shepherd. Moses' mother Jochebed guided her son down the river with faith in the Shepherd of our souls. As parents, we too can trust the Good Shepherd to guide and direct us. Isaiah promised he shall gently lead all those who bear responsibility for the young. He will help us trust and honor the principles of agency, opposition, and the Atonement, even when our children make unwise decisions. Through His Spirit, He will help us teach our children to meet every challenge, trial, and tribulation in life by remembering who they are, children of God. We will be inspired with ways to help them put on the whole armor of God so they can withstand the fiery darts of the adversary. And with the shield of faith and the sword of spirit, as our children spiritually armed and strengthened, He will bless them to endure faithfully to the end and return home worthy to stand and live in their Heavenly Father's presence forever. Through it all, we will sorrow to see our family members suffer the slings and arrows of mortality. But we will stand all amazed at the love of our Savior, the love He offers them. Because of Him, the buffetings need not defeat and destroy them, but can soften, strengthen, and sanctify them. To parents and families throughout the world, I testify that the Lord Jesus Christ is mighty to save. He is the healer, the redeemer, the rescuing shepherd, who will leave the ninety and nine to find the one. If we are seeking the salvation of special ones in our own families, I bear testimony they are within His reach. We assist Him in reaching them by faithfully living the gospel, being sealed in the temple, and truly living the covenants we make there parents can take great comfort in the words of Elder Orson F. Whitney relating the teachings of Joseph Smith. Quote, the Prophet Joseph Smith declared, and he never taught more comforting doctrine, and the eternal sealings of faithful parents and divine promises made to them from the valiant service in the cause of truth would save not only themselves, but likewise their posterity. Though some of the sheep may wander, the eye of the Shepherd is upon them, and sooner or later they will feel the tentacles of divine providence reaching out and bringing them and drawing them back to the fold. Either in this life or the life to come, they will return. They will have to pay their debt to justice. They will suffer for their sins and may tread a thorny path but if it leads them at last, like a penitent prodigal, to a loving and forgiving father's heart and home, the painful experience will not have been in vain. Pray for your careless and disobedient children. Hold on to them with your faith. Hope on, trust on, till you see the salvation of God." End of quote. I bear my special witness that Jesus Christ gave His life, making possible the salvation and exaltation of all the families of the earth. With all the feeling of a tender parent, I express my love and our love for our Heavenly Father to you and to your family. May we gather our loved ones around us, gird up our loins, fresh courage take. Our God will never us forsake. With faith, courage, and love, families will truly be forever. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.